This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the brand new number one best-selling Amazon blockbusting book, The Seeds of Deconstruction, One Troublemaker's Journey from Religious Certainty to Liberating Doubt by brand new author, Nat Turney, also the co-host of This Is Not Church, the podcast. If you are deconstructing, if you have deconstructed, if you're thinking about deconstructing or you're just wondering what the hell is deconstruction anyway, pick up this book and find out. It's all the rage. All the kids are doing it. It's great. Check it out wherever fine books are sold. Buy a copy for yourself. Buy one for your friends. Maybe take it to your Bible study and really piss some folks off. Peace out. Love y'all. Thanks. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with the foresight of giving me that middle name? Like they knew way back in the last century that I'd need something to use to name for my podcast and my Twitter or my ex or whatever it is now. Yeah, pretty, pretty special. <laughs> hey, today is another strong show. We've got my friend Paul Young on. He wrote a little book you might have heard about a few years ago. It's called The Shack. Yeah, it sold over like 20 million copies. It's still selling or something like that. It's about 19,990,000 more than my best-selling book. So I've gotten to know Paul just a little bit recently. I wasn't surprised once I got to know him to find out that he is a very genuine dude And honestly, at the end of the day, what more do you want people to say about you? Like, really? He memorized a lot of Bible verses, or he was genuine? Made a lot of money, or he was genuine? I'm going for the latter. So I really appreciated getting to know him. Um, And he also wrote a really sweet endorsement for my new book coming out this fall. Among other things, he said, and I quote, I love, love, love this book. (laughs) That's a pretty good endorsement. I love, love, love this book. Pretty cool. Before we get to Paul, there's a couple of things. So first of all, this podcast now is a part of, group, part of a group of podcasts called The Choir Cast. I know, pretty interesting, right? It's spelled Q-U-O-I-R, but it sounds like choir. Then again, this is a podcast, so you don't care what it's spelled like. Anyhow, yep, we're joining forces with podcasts like Heretic Happy Hour, The New Evangelicals, the Messy Spirituality Podcast, many others like that. So it's cool. But also you'll notice that there will be some new and more consistent advertisements happening, first for books and then also for podcasts from Choir Publishing. So it's a really good time to join them as they're partnering up with Pathios, which is a fairly well-known online website that hosts, their tagline is that they host conversations about faith. And they've been a consistent place that I've gone to for years. So I'm glad to be partnering up with them. I don't know that any of us would sign up to hear more advertisements, but we would sign up for doing things with others and also for hopefully being financially compensated. So you know what? We're going for it. That's what we're doing. Speaking of doing things with others, Theology Beer Camp is happening October 19th through the 21st with Trip Fuller and a whole bunch of podcasters and theologians in the metropolis of Springfield, Missouri. So look, let's be clear about this. I don't know anything about beer, but I do have some pretty dialed in opinions about theology. So I should be there and I'm going to be there and some of my friends will be there. 
I hope you'll come too. And if you do come, make sure you use the promo code Jonathan Foster to get $25 off of your ticket price. And to do all of that, just go to theologybeer.camp. You can find out more information about what is happening there. All right. Paul Young, he's the author of The Shack, uh, of a book called Eve, also Crossroads. And then his most recent nonfiction book is called Lies We Believe About God. You know, I'm not sure there are very many people who've played a more significant role in the landscape of American Christianity, of especially of helping evangelical types like I used to be, um, kind of be open to a more expansive kind of theology. Yeah, I'm not sure there are very many more people who have played a more important role than Paul. Honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's had a bigger impact. Um, I don't know, maybe Rob Bell, maybe Richard Rohr. Yeah, with the publication of The Shack, Paul went straight to the top of the heretical list, which is a good sign that he was doing something healthy. And I remember reading the book 10 or so years ago. It was an important thing, and it still is. So really glad to have him on today. All right. If you like it, make sure to leave a review, share it with a friend. Oh, and also find me online at jonathanfosteronline.com because there's some new things fixing to happen, not the least of which is a new book coming out that I've already alluded to, the one that Paul's endorsed, and others. He's not the only one. Others have endorsed it as well. And this doesn't take away from any of the other writing that I've ever done in the past, but I am very interested in this new thing. It's going to be pretty cool. It's intense, but it's cool. So I hope you'll go to the website, sign up for the pre-launch stuff. It's not like a big hype thing. Trust me, I'm just doing what I can do to be a good steward of something that I think could be pretty special. So I hope I'll see you there. All right, here's my conversation with Paul Young. Peace, everyone. Actually, the one I sent you, and that's it's. I've been looking at it. It's quite beautiful. Oh, thank it's a, you. It's a very different way to approach any subject, but particularly the subject of grief, because um, poetry is a really powerful medium, and it's uh, it's more of a window than a wall. Mm. And, um, and then you know, for me, fiction and the arts, things like that, they create more space than they use. It's mm. a, it becomes an opportunity for people to hear for themselves in ways that, you know, nonfiction doesn't. And um, so. I, Thank you. Well, I, yeah, I agree. I think that's true. And it's been really important for me over the years too. So yeah, um, I mean, obviously the nonfiction serves its, its purpose, but something oh, absolutely. about that. Seems like um seems like Jesus kind of knew about that too. Told told a few stories, told a few parables. Or I think he knew very much about that. What's the one line? He didn't do anything without telling a story or something. something that like that. Yeah. One of the gospel writers said. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Well, all right. Uh we are here with my friend William Paul Young. And Paul is probably fairly well known to most of the people listening. Weird, right? It's weird how that works. Uh, author of The Shack and of Eve and Crossroads and Lies We Believe About God. And 
other books that I'm probably not remembering off the top of my head, but um, no all all good stuff. And um, we're really happy to have you on today. And thanks for hanging out with me. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. It's an honor to be with you. Well, I appreciate that. And thanks for reading some of my stuff. That's a that's pretty fun. I got a uh, I got an endorsement this morning from uh, got it back from um, a friend of mine who uh, her name's Catherine Keller. I don't know if you uh, know Dr. Catherine, but she's a Theo poet. Nice. And, uh, she's she is just absolutely one of my favorite uh, authors. And so was really honored over the last couple of years to get to know her. And she sent me a really nice review this morning. So good. So Paul, you can't bring me down. No matter what you do today, you will not be able to bring me down. <laughs> okay. Is this a challenge? <laughs> no, no, it's not. I've, I've good, had plenty. I'm not good at this kind of challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I've, had, I've had plenty of that, so we don't need that. But yeah. well, I don't it's have an good. agenda. I, I, I mean, I have a couple questions. Um, Please. Questions are good. They, a good question is worth a thousand answers. So that's right. That's right. Fire away. Well, I thought maybe where we might start is um, an obvious place to start would be to talk a bit about the shack. And I know that your, I mean, it's the success of that thing was like unprecedented, and yeah. I, from all appearances, seems like completely out of the blue to you and to everyone else. Absolutely. And, how amazing that is, but also the thing that always catches my attention with greatest success is what was it like living on the in the wake of that? And I'm, I know there were a lot of blessings, and I don't want to diminish any of those. Um, but what were the challenges like living in the wake of the success, either you know with publishing or with personal or sure. uh, and how did that shape your character? And did it shape your character as much as the success itself? The one thing that I'm extremely grateful for is that all the things that mattered were in place before I wrote the book. And uh, or else, you know, success will bring more crap out of people than failure ever would. <laughs> so but the things that were in place were identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, all in place. And so when when I wrote the book, which was a gift for my kids for Christmas, and that's all it was, and it's and then it's because of my friends who got the extras of my fifteen copies I printed at Office Depot. Uh, when it started to pick up this momentum, it was more curious and funny than anything else. And um, um, but the beautiful thing is because those those major elements were in place. It didn't change the fabric of my life at that point. It had taken me a long time to get to the place, you know, and thankfully, um, I was 50 years old when I wrote that thing. And not 52. I was 52 when it's it was actually put into print for for consumption. And, and uh, 50 was the year I finally felt I was healthy enough to write a story for my kids that Kim had been asking me to do. Hmm. And later she tells me she was thinking more four to six pages. <laughs> but uh, but it turned into this thing. And um, the one gift that was new and different was that suddenly I was invited to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Hmm. 
that was mind blowing. Somebody says, what do you do these days? And I said, I walk around barefoot. And um, there is nothing like that. There is no more honor that is possible than someone to invite you into their the holy ground of their story, you know, the burning bush thing, where, where everything that is not true, right, and real is being burned away, all the dead wood, mm. and the living things, the living elements, the living parts of our life are not touched or harmed, mm -hmm. right? That is the fiery fury of God's wrath that is not focused on the one he loves, which would be you and I, but is absolutely intensely intending to destroy everything in us that is not of love's kind everything in us that keeps us from being fully human and fully alive and um so that was uh, that was unanticipated um and a surprise and a gift um but thankfully you know coming through this thing it solidified the the 11 years of work that I had done that consumed my need for for notoriety hmm. my discontent my the sucking wounds of my soul right hmm. and uh and so I was in a really good place when I wrote it and I'm still in a really good place regardless of all the crazy, funny, amazing things that have happened along the way and continue to. And, uh, you know, but learning to stay present to the moment has really been helpful. Mm -hmm. where, where it's only about a response to that which is actually in front of you. The The phrase that the Holy Spirit, I, I'm pretty sure, gave me about, I don't know, four years ago, that is now my phrase is trust the ripples trust the ripples that is don't make your decisions based on outcomes make them based on a response to that is that is what a response to what is actually in front of you and then trust the ripples you know and uh because trust was my big thing i didn't have much of that i had none of that actually for most of my life um damage and loss will do that to you and um but to be in a place where I don't need notoriety, I don't need platform, I don't need fame, I, I don't need a following, I don't, you know, um, I don't need the attention. Uh, we're working on our 17th grandchild. Wow. Come on, I, I got it all, you know. So, so people who would look at my life would think, that these sorts of things would impact me and I would change. But anybody that knows me knows I haven't changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the things that matter today are all the things that have mattered. They mattered before I wrote the book. And uh, that's, that's pretty great. And uh, isn't that great? That yeah, is that's, so great. Um, that's great. Yeah. And I don't need it. If it all, if it all disappeared tomorrow, I'd be absolutely fine. Yeah. I'd be great. <laughs> So um, a lot of writers would, and maybe this is cliche, I don't know, because I haven't had, obviously, the experience of selling 20 plus million books. Um, but 
Although with your endorsement on this next one, we, you know, I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get a few. Um, did you feel, you didn't feel paralyzed by the pressure of the success of that thing? Oh, let me tell you, this is a great story, actually. So we had to go through a, a settlement process, you know, like I said, things can go hinky and sideways and people can, you know, stuff comes to the surface. My crap, people's crap, you know. And uh, it took us a couple of years to to work it through. But in that settlement agreement, the publisher of the shack, their piece of it was that I would write a book for them that was due a year, the first full manuscript a year later, right? And I'm like, I got nothing, you know. I don't, I don't have anything. And they goes, oh, don't worry about it. You have a year. I'm like, all right. It was just, it was part of the agreement. And uh, so for a couple of days, I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> and then, and then this calm comes up and I have this conversation with Trinity. And, uh, and I said, wait, what, what am I freaking out about? And I said, you know what? If I, a year from now, walk in the door and I haven't got one word on one page, I'll be totally fine. And everything settled down. And I went back to doing what I was doing, not even thinking about writing whatever. And uh, and so I'm coming back from a trip from, I think it was from South Korea. And um, something like that. I was overseas and I get home and somebody contacts me and says, hey, we just feel a nudge. There's a place that we own that's at the Oregon coast. And we have this space for 10 days. Do you want to use it? And I'm like, sure. And I'm thinking like, well, that'd be a great place to, to, to write. <laughs> and so, and then I'm thinking like, you know, I got this idea that's just been kind of niggling at me from the edges and, uh, and I'm not sure what to do about it. And I don't even know what it means, but I'll go down there and see what happens. So I go to the Oregon coast and in 10 days, minus two days in which Kim comes with a, a sister and a brother-in-law and spends a weekend there. But in basically eight days, I wrote 40,000 words of crossroads. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. And it just like, bam, it was like the same experience when I wrote the shack where it was like, I told Kim one time, she, she comes home. I had a Saturday where I had nothing, you know, because I'm working three jobs. I'm shipping out soldering tips and cleaning toilets and, and stuff like this. I'm working in a hot food line and a processor. And uh, but I had this Saturday off, like no jobs, which is really unusual. And and Kim was going to go with the kids somewhere. And I started eight in the morning and at 830 that night, she comes home and she looks, takes one look at me and she says, what happened to you? And because I'm a mess. And I said, you know, I stepped outside the door at eight o'clock and this river was there. It had never been there. And it swept me downstream for 25 miles and spat me out naked and bleeding. <laughs> that's exactly how it felt. And, uh, did, and that's did she know I, you were speaking metaphorically right away? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. She's her her wisdom. We we call she calls common sense. We call it wisdom, but she calls common sense. <laughs> And uh, but I wrote four complete chapters that day of the shack. And the fourth one was 
um, chapter 15, Festival of Friends, mm. which is in the book today, the way, this exact way that I wrote it, never touched by a rewrite. Wow. It's chapter 15. Wow. And uh, and so it was like, a, you know, getting caught in a river. Well, going down there was for Crossroads was like getting caught in a river. And, uh, and um, yeah, I'd do all the editing stuff, which is kind of a... It's kind of like iron sharpens iron if the angle's right. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was it was great. And I had I had crossroads done, full manuscript, rough draft to go to the editors six months ahead of schedule. Right. And wow. uh, no, no. And it's just it's just like, but the best part of that was that it was okay if I completely fell on my face and in, in front of other people. That was the best part of that because it's back to trust. You know, it's not about the outcomes. It's not about being driven by fear, yeah. which is, you know, the opposite of trust is control. Yeah. And uh, the operative power is, is fear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, love trusts. Fear seeks a way to control. Yeah, and I imagine um, similar, really closely to what you're saying. It seems like you had just a sense of freedom once you discovered that it's okay if I fail, and maybe it's out of that space of freedom that yeah. the uh, 25 mile river internal yeah maybe ha happened. And uh, uh, I maybe think when I dreams good. Yeah, when I um, finally the the year I wrote the shack and I was working my three jobs, I was finally content. And we had nothing. Mm -hmm. We had lost everything. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the year before 2004, um, uh, over those 11 years, I had, I had, I, I talk about it like a spiral, you know, a spiral that a spiral feels like you're going in circles, but you're actually going deeper. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was going deeper into places of mistrust or lack of trust or not trusting at all. And and over those 11 years, I kept spiraling. But a lot of times it felt like I'm just going in circles, you know, and it's not. God doesn't build roads going nowhere. So it's just like spiral, spiral, spiral. And my 11th year, 2004, right at the beginning of the year, I ran into probably it was the last major issue of trust. There are lots of minor issues of trust. There's lots of finish work. You know, but over those 11 years, I worked on the big construction pieces of the broken places, right? And uh, and some of that required therapy. Some of it required inviting men into my life, which uh, was a big trust issue. Um, so over those 11 years, but I ran into the big one, and it was fear of financial insecurity, right? And we lived in this really cool house for 17 years. At that point, we were buying it. And and it was on some acreage and the kids had grown up there. And it was, it was such a great place to live. And at the beginning of 2004, at this time, by this time, I didn't keep any secrets from Kim, you know, the, you know how our noble BS says, well, I don't want her to be worried. It's that we don't want, we don't want to tell the truth because of the outcomes, you know, the consequences and um, fear again. But uh, by this time, and I talked to Kim right at the beginning, and I realized because of some of the economy going the way it was and some of those secrets that I'd kept and I put the house upside down and things like that, and they were all coming back. Mm -hmm. All those things were kind of coalescing at one point. 
And I said, we're in danger of losing the house because of my stupidity and, and, and my fear of not meeting your expectations or whatever, you know, or my fear of what I perceive to be your expectations, which wasn't true at all. But, um, and, uh, and again, when I ran into this issue of trust, I had to make a choice. I had to find a way to do trust or just like scramble, whatever. And, and so I, I first went on a fast, right? Not a hunger strike, but an actual fast. Mm. And it was so that I could clear my head from mm. all this noise that I was hearing and um and the fear that was a part of that which was yelling pretty loud at that point and for five days i'm asking the lord the same thing and i'm here's what i'm saying how come i've trusted you my whole life with our finances and we've been up and down and up and down and up and down for five days i say these this thing every morning and uh i hear nothing i hear nothing fifth day I pray the same thing. And I hear the Lord say, Paul, are you ready to listen? And I'm like, why do you think I'm fasting? <laughs> <laughs> and I hear Paul, listen to me. You have never trusted me your whole life with anything, let alone your finances. Are you kidding? You will manipulate relationships. You will, you will shade the truth and you're you would you'll lie to save your ass. I mean, those are the exact words that I heard. And I'm like, boom, it's true. And for five days, I was, I was lying to God every morning. And it crushed me. Mm. And now I was like, so what am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do. I mean, how do I trust you? And by then I had a dozen guys in my life and I knew that three of them could sit down, write a check, wouldn't harm them whatsoever and knock me out of my situation. Right. Yeah. And so I called each one of them and I told them, I told them, you know, what my situation was, what, what kind of a, a where it had happened from. And then I said to each one of them, please, please, please don't rescue me from this because you will probably be interfering with what God is trying to do in my heart. Yeah. And so um, nine months later, I think it was September of 2004, seven of those guys, unbeknownst to me, took a day off from work and came and sat with me at uh, the Clackamas County Courthouse in Oregon while the county auctioned off the house we'd been living in for 17 years. And they took the house and they took creditors, took the cars. And one of the guys gave me a car that had been in a wreck. But at that point, we didn't even have the money to put gas in it. And we they found a little house that we could rent for a cheap amount of money out on Wildcat Mountain Road in the middle of 500 acres of Christmas trees. And a couple months later, because I couldn't get easily to the train to go to one of my three jobs that I was working at that point. But we found a little house because of relationship connections on the corner of 12th street basically 950 square feet of usable space one little bathroom two little bedrooms we created a make-believe one in the basement 
concrete and, and in the midst of where all the clothes would hang and um and joy dropped on us mm. like a ton of bricks and we were there for two and a half years and my kids would tell you kim would tell you i'd tell you those were two and a half of the best years of our lives mm. we had nothing kim gets a job at the high school bakery two blocks away and starts dragging kids to our house <laughs> filling up all our extra space you know and um and we walked everywhere i could walk two blocks away and catch the train to go downtown to one of my jobs and and i was content and i thought all right this is what i do the rest of my life this is what i do the rest of my life and i'm good with that and 2005 clicks over and i'm thinking one day you know what this is the year i turn 50 50 is a good year 50 is when all debts are paid you're right? jubilee yeah, year of Jubilee. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what? I'm like one of the healthiest people that I know. Like, I don't have any secrets. I don't have any addictions. I finally know how to... I finally know what it's like to be a child. Joy has become a constant companion. I'm the same person in every situation. I don't, I'm not playing to an audience. And I'm a truth teller. And, and then, it, then I remember, you know, Kim's been asking me for like four years. Once in a while, she will just say, you know, someday, as a gift for our kids, why don't you write something that puts in one place how you think? Because you think outside the box. And I finally felt healthy enough to do that. And so I wrote a story for my kids. And at Christmas, I went down to Office Depot and printed 15 copies of the shack. Because you get a price break at 15. <laughs> <laughs> and so our six kids got a copy and Kim and I kept one and I gave the extras to my friends because I didn't know what to do with them. And I went back to work. Never crossed my mind to publish the book, never crossed my mind to becoming an author, nothing, right? I just wrote a story for my kids because I wanted them, I didn't want them to be hurt by a lot of the things that had hurt me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to save them some time. And, uh, and those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do, everything. So you want to hear the rest of this story? Yeah, that's why we're here, man. Okay. So my friends started giving the copies away. Yeah. Oh, we, we made an extra 15 copies. We pulled, put a little collection together, made 15 more copies. So that, cause they had friends who were saying, we want to give this to our friends. I started getting emails from people I didn't know. And this they was kind of before this was internet was happening, but hadn't really yeah. caught yeah, yeah, on yeah. a bunch yeah. yet. Right. Yeah. yeah, but I was getting emails from people I didn't know who were telling me their stories, and I didn't know what to do about them. But I have, I was a driver one day for an actual author, and so I sent him an email saying, what do you do with emails like this? Because I don't know what to do. And he's like, why are they sending you these? And I'm, and I'm like, I wrote this thing for my kids. What did you write? So I sent him an electronic copy, and he's, he immediately emails me back and says, you know, I get a lot of, I understand this. I get yeah. a lot of things like this and, um, and it'll probably take me six months. I'm like, who cares? I just want to know what to do with these emails. 
And uh, so he uh, he says, I, I'll get back to you, right? That was on a Friday night. Monday, he phone calls me and says, why did you send me that manuscript? I'm like, I thought he was offended. <laughs> I just said, throw it out. And he goes, no, 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 I can't print the pages fast enough. Wow. I'm like, what? And he goes, I haven't seen anything like this in the last 10 years where my first thought is, I have I have a dozen friends I need to send this to like right now. I said, I don't care. Send it to whoever you want. He said, I already did. <laughs> so that started the whole chain reaction, right? Yeah. And so it becomes this thing and it keeps it keeps growing and growing and growing. And then it goes international, right? It becomes a bestseller in Germany and in South Korea and in Brazil and all this kinds of stuff. And I, I'm traveling. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so, you know, my my calendar gets absolutely. I have an email right there on the floor. I found it the other day that has my schedule for a month, and it's like nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And um, so I go to Germany, and I. I do two weeks with Kim and one of our daughters and we travel around Germany and, and it's a fantastic thing. And, uh, and they, the publisher in Germany, Alegria says, Hey, Paul, um, we want to make a documentary about your life. I'm like, for real? <laughs> and they go, yeah. They said, our, our readers love to know the background of the, of the ones they're writing. Um, the ones they're reading. I'm looking at Kim and it's like, I don't know. Okay, sure. So they they attach a um a video a, a video director, Suzanne, and she is like a really high quality, you know, National Ge Geographic type person, and wow. she has a camera crew, and they and they follow us around for two weeks in Germany. This it's great. We become friends and all this stuff, and uh, and at the end of the two weeks, um, the publisher says. Uh, Hey, we would like to come to Oregon next May, uh, April, next April for 10 days. And, uh, and we want to shoot interviews with you and your family and your friends and take site location shots because everything's in Oregon. And, um, and what do you think? So I look at the calendar. It's open. I'm like, sure. Why not? And we're still living in the little tiny house on the corner of, uh, were we? No, because the book is put into print for mass usage in 2007. This is now 2010. And they want to come April of 2011, right? So it's like, uh, yeah, sure. They said, we have a favor to ask. Great. Um, do you know a videographer in Oregon that that would save us? We don't have to uh, fly somebody from Germany. There won't be a language problem. All the equipment will already be there. And that person will know the site locations because it's in Oregon. And it would just save us a huge amount of headache and cost and all that. I'm like, yeah, I know one. I know one. <laughs> he And he's he's worked for Channel 8 for years, shot the Rose Festival, works for, has jobs with Nike and Intel. And he's good. He's a high class professional. And uh, his name's Joe. And they said, great. So I connect Suzanne with Joe. Um, and uh, Joe was one of the seven guys that sat with me at the county courthouse, right? And at the end of 2004. 
And so I, then I'm out of the scene, right? And uh, and so Joe uh, is connecting with Suzanne, and he's, he looks at his calendar, and he goes, Suzanne, I am... Um, I'm doing a shoot for Nike and I've postponed them twice. I can't do it again. And so I can't do the shoot. But the good news is I know every videographer in Oregon. So I'm going to connect you with a guy named Bill Dolan. So Joe connects Suzanne with Bill Dolan. Bill Dolan looks at his schedule and he goes, Suzanne, I can't do the job. I've got a conflict. But I know you need a videographer. So I'm going to take your... Um, I'm going to take the job on paper and subcontract it to a friend of mine named Kevin Feltz. He's a professional. He's excellent at what he does, and it'll be great. So I don't know about this. Um, it's gone from Joe Khalil to Bill Dolan uh, to Kevin Feltz, and I don't know Bill Dolan, and I don't know Kevin Feltz, and, but I don't know. I just am kind of oblivious to all of it anyway. Mm -hmm. So I get a call, and they said, hey, the, one of the places that we want to shoot at is – the little house on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham. And and can you call whoever is renting it now and see if, if they'll let us shoot there? So I call, it's two single moms, right, that are now renting that little place. And uh, I said, you know, this is a really weird question, but um, there's a German publishing company that would like to shoot part of a documentary at the house you're living in. Would that be okay? <laughs> and they're going like... <laughs> Why would a German publisher want to shoot part of a documentary at our house? And and I'm like, well, we used to live there. And I wrote this little book for my kids, and it's become a thing. And they go, what did you write? I said, well, it's called The Shack. Oh, my gosh, we read The Shack. It just, you know, had this big impact in our lives. So we're in like Flynn, right? Yeah. So, so the day arrives uh, that we're going to shoot at the little corner house on, on 12th Street. It's like we're, we're going to start there. And so Susanna's on the porch. Alegria is like an esoteric publisher, right? The Shack became one of the first books in the modern history of Germany that actually crossed over into the secular publishing um, market. Um, because mostly anything faith-based or esoteric, it stayed in esoteric side. Mm -hmm. But this crossed over. It was everywhere. And so Suzanne's there. I'm there. And up walks this videographer, I don't know, Bill Dolan. And he's looking around and he goes, Paul, can I ask you a really weird question? And I'm like, sure. Cause I'm thinking videographer. I know nothing about videography. He's going to mm -hmm. ask me a weird question. And, and he says, now this is now April, 2011. He said, back in 2000 and back in 2005, did you have a Christmas where you had absolutely nothing? And I'm like, that's a weird question. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, we had a Christmas where we had absolutely nothing. Why? He goes, oh, man, I thought so. He says, do you remember someone slipping some money under your door at Christmas? And I said, yes, but nobody knows about that. He goes, that was me. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. He goes, he goes, Suzanne's next to me going, can we shoot this? <laughs> and I'm like, what? He goes, oh, let me explain what happened to me in 2005. So Christmas is coming. And I suddenly get a nudge that I think is the Holy Spirit. That I'm supposed to 
give some money this Christmas to someone who has nothing, but I don't know anybody like that. And I'm kind of in a quandary about it. And right before Christmas, I go to Blockbuster to pick up a movie for my kids, a Christmas movie. And I run into this guy and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. We used to share office space. He's a business guy. And he's dropped into this particular blockbuster to pick up a Christmas movie for his kids. And we start talking, catching up. And I don't know why I even tell him, but I tell him, I think I'm supposed to give some money this Christmas to you, to somebody who has absolutely nothing, but I don't know anybody like that. He said, Paul, he writes down this address. He doesn't even tell me who lives here. He just writes down an address. And at Christmas, I put five $20 bills into an envelope and I slipped them under your door. I'm like, who's the guy at Blockbuster? He goes, oh, you probably don't know him. His name is Scott Klausner. One of my best friends and one of the guys who sat with me at the county courthouse. And uh, I said, Kevin, you don't understand. That $100, it... uh, it paid for a couple of things that Kim and I really needed right then, but it gave me the extra money to go down to Office Depot and print the first 15 copies of the shack. That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? And I'm like, look at this. It takes a German publishing company who want to do a documentary and they want me to find a videographer and two videographers turn it down so that I can meet the man who gave me enough money so I could give my kids a Christmas present that year. Yeah. That's so cool. That is so cool. Right? Yeah, it makes me think about um, all the, well, there's a lot of things to think about, but all the stories like that going on that we're not even aware of. Absolutely. As, As love just creatively weaves herself, itself in and around this world. That's pretty You're absolutely right. You're ab- and the only time you can see it is if you learn how to stay present. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't stay present. And it mm-hmm. doesn't restrict the loving activity of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit whatsoever. Right. At, at, God doesn't do it for attention. A lot of times God does it for fun. Mm-hmm. God doesn't work with secrets, but he loves surprises. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all this kind of playing tells us that God is the originator of play. And uh, and being a child of God, there's there's a lot about playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we, but we have to learn to be comfortable with ourselves enough to stay in the present in the in the moment so that yeah. we can right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought about a hundred different things as you were talking, but one of the things that I thought about, especially when you're talking about living in that place and having nothing and, and, um, but being joyful and happy after our, uh, after our daughter passed away, she was planning to be a medical missionary to Haiti. Mm. So we started going to Haiti and, um, it is hilarious how much money, I mean, I won't say the money because for some people it won't seem like a lot for others. It'll seem like a ton it was hilarious how much money we started giving away just spending just to get down there. Haiti is not a, it's not a cheap place to go to. Of course, right now, unfortunately it's such a train wreck. You can't, uh, no one from the global North should be going down, but um, it, it just, uh, it was so much fun and, and it, it essentially ruined our financial situation uh, for, for quite some time. Um, but 
so thankful to be a part of that thing. And then the stories again and again and again, and the people we've been able now for eight and a half years to continue to stay in contact with. It is, um, yeah, you can't, how do, how do you measure that? It's not about money at all. It's such a blessing. Eternal. The the real things are always eternal, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and relationships are eternal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it is. It's astounding. For sure. for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. Speaking of stories, um, Lies We Believe About God is something you wrote probably 2018, somewhere around there? Yeah, right in there. Yeah. That was funny because for me, I went through massive shifts in my theology and was really kind of landing on new stuff around 2017 and 2018. And um, so reading, like, it would have been hilarious for me to have read that book five years earlier. I would have thought, oh, geez, I, I most of these lives, lies I think I'm still good with. But by that <laughs> By that time, it had became like corroboration of, oh, yeah, I'm going I'm going the right direction. Yeah. So um, one of my favorite stories in there, I wondered if you might um, reshare if you're up for it sure. for those who haven't read the book and now they can run out and get the book. But um, and then I have I have I have a little bit of commentary I want to add after you share the story, but I won't okay. share it first um, is uh, your story about your your mom and the nurse and the doctor. Oh, that yeah. Whole story. That's. That's another. Are you up for resharing that here? Absolutely. So my mom, who passed away three years ago, she um, came from a German Baptist background. She she always wanted to be a missionary. So she goes into nurses training because she figures she's never going to get married. And and she so she needs a skill that is wanted on the mission field. And and so she decides to become a nurse and she does it. That's her first degree. She went to Bible school after that. And uh, and uh, so she she goes to Victoria Jubilee Hospital in Victoria, British Columbia uh, for her training. And it's a it's a four year school. And she goes in. She's like 18. Um, And uh, in her first year of schooling, she's you know, an aide, assistant, intern, whatever they were called. And um, and she happens to be on duty. There's, there's a woman um, who is the wife of the pastor of the Anglican church in the city. And she um, she's tried to have a baby. She's been trying to have a baby. And she had had five second, late second trimester miscarriages in a row. And, um, and it's... Uh, it's it's been devastating that whole journey and so she and the church and everybody you know were well aware of this and they were praying about it and and there was this just this encouragement that she should try one more time and so i don't remember if it was four already or five i have to look it up but but anyway it doesn't matter a lot and uh so she tries uh they get pregnant she's in her second trimester and she comes into the hospital bleeding. And the doctor, who's an elder at the church, um, the head doctor examines her while, um, and, and says, I'm so sorry, we're going to have to take the baby. Um, it's her life or the baby's life. And so it's night, it's at night. And so he, he grabs the head nurse who's on duty and 
um, a student nurse to assist and the student nurse happens to be my mom. And so they're going to go in the operating room and they're going to deliver this baby. And they deliver a one pound baby boy, exactly one pound. And this is a long time ago. I mean, they didn't have, you know, they used chicken incubators for preemies. And, uh, and so, I mean, there's, there's nothing. He puts the baby into a uh, one of those little trays, hands the baby to my mother and says, it's not viable, dispose of it, and goes back to finishing what he needs to do. My mom looks at this baby and the baby is still alive. And when the doctor says, get rid of it, it means put this baby into the incinerator because that's what you did with medical waste. You burned it. And so she goes into the outer, you know, through the doors of the operating room and into the, the area where the incinerator is. And she's looking at the baby and she can't do it. She just can't. She can't put a living baby in the incinerator. So she she wraps up this little tiny one pound baby into a cloth, um, a little towel. And the baby is absolutely silent because preemies tend to be quiet. And she uh, puts them puts them back into the kidney tray, walks back into the operating room and puts the, the kidney tray on top of the sterilization unit because it's the only pl warm place in the room. The doctor assumes that she has taken care of the problem. And, and uh, he leaves to go clean up, leaving, leaving, oh, well, and the head nurse leaves too um, with, uh, with the mom, uh, with the woman and, um, and leaving my mom to do the cleanup. So my mom does all the cleanup, then takes this little kidney tray, takes the baby out, sits in a chair and holds this little baby waiting for him to die. Because that's the thing. Once the baby dies, then she can obey the doctor, but she can't until the baby dies. It's like 10 o'clock at night, she starts holding this baby. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, the baby's not dying. And so she realizes, I better tell somebody. So she calls the head nurse, who is a grumpy woman. And the head nurse is just like, oh my gosh, this is a big problem. But she has to call the doctor. The doctor comes in from home and he's furious. He lights into my mom for her insubordination and everything else. And he says, this is, you've created this problem. Now it's your problem. So my mom doesn't know what to do. So takes the little baby up to the nursery and they get a chicken incubator and the nurses and my mom take care of this baby around the clock. Two days later, the baby is still alive. Meanwhile, after the surgery, the doctor had met with the parents and said, I'm so sorry, but the baby didn't make it. And uh, so for two days, they have been grieving over the death of their child. And uh, so now, two days later, the doctor is like, I, I don't know how long this baby's gonna live before it finally dies, but I better tell the parents. So he goes into the parents and he says, I am so sorry um, that I miscommunicated because you have a little baby boy, but he, he is not going to live, but he is, he is held on for two days. They're thrilled. 
yeah. you know, even to have a living baby boy. Yeah. And uh, so they have a little um, christening service and the dad baptizes him with a, with a, uh, a little eyedropper. And because uh, he's he's now gone from 16 ounces down to 14 ounces. And uh, they name him Harold, which means good news, Harold Munn. Mm-hmm. And uh, then um, they give the baby back, the little boy back to the to my mom and to take care of in the nursery. They they don't know anything about what my mom had de- done. Oh, the doctor had said, but due to the miracles of modern medicine, we've managed to keep him alive. That's what he that's what he said to them. <laughs> and uh, so my mom takes care of him and the baby starts to pick up weight. And two weeks later, little tiny Harold mom, two months later, actually two months later, little tiny Harold mom goes, mom goes home to his parents in a shoebox. And two years later, all the nurses in the nursery, including my mom, get an invitation to his second birthday party. And so they go and they're curious because this is code of silent time in history, right? You don't say anything. You don't communicate anything. You know, when a doctor walks down the path, you get off the path. They are dressed in white. They're the holy people, right? It's that kind of time. And so nobody has told this story to anybody. And well, my mom really is the only one who knew the whole story, but they go and they're looking around and finally they spot Harold, a little bit smaller than the other two-year-olds, but he's running around and looks perfectly normal. So my mom graduates and goes to Bible school, not knowing anything about whatever happens to Harold. Years later, years later, she hears that the head doctor had finally died. <laughs> And after the head doctor dies, it's kind of like the rules are are finally over. My dad didn't even know this story. And that's the first time that she told any of us. And she tells us a story. We're kind of blown away. But she decides to track down Harold. And she finds him. He was now pastoring the church just down the road from where his father pastored in 1948. Right? And for six months, my mom... Her struggle was, how do I tell Harold the truth about his birth without him thinking that I'm looking for credit? That's mm-hmm. her big struggle. And so she um, she finally sends him a little letter. Meanwhile, his parents had both passed. And uh, in the letter, she explains, she, he, she immediately gets a phone call saying, is this Bernice? Yes, we need to talk. And they get together, my mom and dad and Harold and his wife. And my mom tells Harold the whole story. And Harold's absolutely blown away. And he said, we always knew that there was a mystery about my birth, but nobody would ever tell us. So meanwhile, Harold had been a missionary overseas. He'd been a missionary to the indigenous tribal people. He had become, he's like six one, six two, And he and I have spoken together a couple times telling this story and things like this. Absolutely incredible. He and I did mom's funeral together. And um, and he would, every every time he would pass anywhere near, he'd come visit my mom. And uh, because she's the reason he even was alive. Yeah, yeah. And so um, this really amazing bond 
took place between very disparate religious perspectives. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Harold and I became good friends um, over this. And the story doesn't stop there. Right. Go ahead. No, I mean, you, you, the rest of your story is when, when she was reading your work, right? She was struggling with your theology, but Harold yes. helped her. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. So she's like, to Harold, it's like, I don't know what to do about this. Um, and Harold says, <laughs> her niece, and starts unfolding it. So because of Harold, my mom was able to step across what she considered to be a dividing line between her and, and me because of theology. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me about that. That's absolutely true. That's pretty great. Oh, amazing. Well, my little commentary is not quite as dramatic, um, but it's kind of sweet and it's fun for me. So my mom passed away about three years ago and her last uh, 24, 36 hours, maybe not even that much, was in, uh, we were in a hospice. First time I'd been in an, a hospice facility I don't, I'd been in lots of situations where hospice had come. So uh, I just mentioned that. I don't know why I mentioned that other than to say what a, it was a really peaceful, beautiful place. It's an amazing hospice is amazing. Yeah. They're amazing people. And that organ, that facility was great. It was totally different than the hospital. Not that people in the hospital aren't great, but um, anyhow, my mom is laying there literally the last few hours of her life. And, and pretty much the whole family is gathered around and, um, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm, you know, a little bit maybe more used to some of those situations than everyone else. Um, and so, and plus I'm the youngest kid. I feel compelled to to share a few words. And I had just read that story. And mm. so there's no direct connection other than it was just a really sweet, like that, that's the last time we gathered around my mom and, and told stories, which we were, were big storytelling, fun family a lot of really interesting things have happened over the years and um and I, I don't know i have no idea what she heard but um i know she would have loved to have heard about this young nurse who had the spine to do something like that and of course it would have been more of her era and it was just fun to talk about the creativity of god i get it it was fun to talk about the creativity of God as as your loved one was fading in to whatever the next iteration of the creativity of of God yeah. was. Yeah. 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 Keep Sorry. So so no direct connection, but but a fun kind of a fun commentary piece for me. And I, and I love that story. Oh, my gosh. It is a beautiful story. And it. And it's, again, such a reminder of the ever-present, continuing kindness of a God who loves us thoroughly, you know. And again, it's, it's the presence, the constant indwelling presence to which we can orientate ourselves to or away from mm -hmm. but it doesn't mm -hmm. change that presence mm -hmm. right and again a, a reminder of me of also what we've already said how many of these stories are going on that we are oh. are not aware of and uh love is just constantly constantly working yeah so cool 
Yeah, we only see a lot of times, you know, in the in Crossroads, the Holy Spirit is a First Nations Sioux woman, older grandmother, and she's a weaver. And uh, a lot of times all we see is the back, you know, which just looks like a bunch of strings. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, we just get this little flip, mm-hmm. not enough to get control, <laughs> but yeah. a little glimpse, you know, and we don't see much, but we see a little. Yeah. And um, and then we go back to looking at the strings that seem to be just a pile of knots. Yeah. Um, and and but we know we have seen something, and uh, and it was enough. Mm-hmm. It was enough. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, thank you. You've uh, that was that was great. I appreciate it. I've taken enough of your time. Uh, maybe we'll just close by asking you. We have a lot of, uh, I get to interact with a lot of younger people who are going through theological change and their families, there's tension. Good Lord, feels like there's tension throughout our country, throughout our world over all kinds of change. Any thoughts of wisdom for these people who are, they're seeing like what you just said, when you see something, um, often my wife and I'll talk about once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you hear yeah. it, you can't unhear it. And when you hear yeah. it, when you experience the freedom of the Lord, which is what's going on here, people, it is where the freedom, where the freedom is, that's where the spirit is. Um, so they, they can't turn away from that, but their families are struggling big time. Yeah. Hard. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's the freedom is freedom to love. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's not freedom to change anybody, to change anyone, to it's and like. Francis of Assisi said, you know, always be prepared to preach the gospel and when necessary, use words right. when necessary. And, and, you know, loving well, this is the thing about the burning bush. It's attractive by nature because it's evident that all the things which are not of love's kind are being burned away. But all, so, so that there is exposed all the things that are of love's kind. And so love well, you know, just love well. And uh, it's not your job to save anybody. It's not your job to fix anybody. You don't future trip your own journey. Stay present and respond to that which is actually in front of you. Be other-centered, self-giving. Be involved in co-suffering, self-sacrificial love. And that's agape. And so, you know, the freedom that you're moving into is a freedom that is deeper and higher and wider with that much more capacity to be the presence of love. It's not your job to fix anybody or anything. It's to respond to the person who's in front of you. And uh, you don't have a responsibility. That's not a biblical word. Right. You have an ability to respond. And that happens moment by moment by moment. Relax. There you go. That's that's a really good word to attach the freedom piece to the love piece. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, you that was excellent. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, you have been interviewed by Oprah and now by me. There you go. How does it um is this like bucket list? It's uh eh, I don't have one of those. I don't think I have one of those. I don't know. Yeah. You have to future trip, I guess, to have a bucket yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, you're you're living in the moment. You're good. You're good. Yeah. I'm sure there are things when I think about it that, well, that'd be fun. You know. My my aunt is a hundred and my dad's oldest sister is a, she's almost a hundred and three. Wow. That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Hey, yeah. I'm definitely gonna live to 103. It, just as where. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. Just to, yeah. just don't know in what form it'll be. Yeah, it's like my friends on death row say. We're all on death row. Yeah. That's it's just true. a matter of time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, we thank you for the invitation. Honored to be here. Always. The two-way street. Absolutely. It was uh, really, really cool. All right, that was a lot of fun. What, I think I asked him three questions, and we talked for about an hour. <laughs> it was a, a good conversation. All right, everyone, hope you get a chance to share, to like it, to review it. You know, those kinds of things. Appreciate your help. Peace, everyone. <laughs>